Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net, episode 98. The True Account, Celsus, Origin, and Ideological Esotericism in Late Antiquity. Welcome to an episode we've been looking forward to since the Schwepp started, all those years ago, a look at the controversy between Origin and Celsus. Actually, it's not exactly a controversy since Celsus was dead by the time it occurred, but it kind of feels like one. So here's the basic background. Sometime in the second century, scholarly estimates range from the year 168 to 180 CE, with a recent outlier arguing for a late date of 200, a middle Platonist philosopher called Celsus published a work called Ho Alethes Logos, the true account, as in the true account of reality, the true rational explication of how things are, but also meaning something like the true tradition, something in fact like a philosophia perennis, a perennial philosophy. This book is the first known anti-Christian polemical work. We have evidence for loads of people saying nasty things about Christians, from quite early on in the movement's history. But this was something else, a reasoned refutation of Christian positions on a number of fronts. It would not be the last such work from a Platonist pen. We know, for example, that the late Platonist Plotinus wrote a long philosophic treatise, the last part of which, known as Against the Gnostics, or Ennead 2.9, is a rich source of anti-Christian Platonist sentiment. While Plotinus's student Porphyry wrote a book which is mostly lost called simply Against the Christians, we shall be discussing both of these works as the podcast progresses. Now, who was this Celsus? We know almost nothing about his life. Uh, in fact, if we didn't have Origen's refutation of Celsus, the Contra Celsum, we would simply not know this guy existed. We have no proof as to where Celsus was born or lived. Suggestions which have been given include the obvious guesses, Rome and Alexandria, and less obvious, such as Caesarea and Pergamum in Asia Minor. But there's a major further problem, which we've just alluded to. We do not possess Celsus's book, The True Account. What we have is a work by Origen, our third century Platonist, known in the manuscripts as Proston Epigegramenon Celsu Alethe Logon Origenus against the writing of Celsus called Alethes Logos by Origen, or in the more familiar abbreviated Latin title known as Contra Celsum, against Celsus. And this was composed, of course, by the great Christian esotericist Origen sometime around the year 248 CE. We're pretty good on the dating of this work, unlike the Alethes Logos itself. So between about 70 to 90 years after the true account was written, give or take, Origen knows that Celsus is long dead by the time he's writing, and he gives some other hints in the Contra Celsum that can be used to help us date Celsus's work, but it doesn't amount to enough evidence for a consensus in the scholarship as to when Celsus wrote exactly. So we only know Celsus through Origen, which is a defense of Christianity against Celsus's anti-Christian claims. Now let's have a quick look at Origen's Contra Celsum. Chadwick's translation remains the best in English, and his preface gives the following useful summary of the work's position, quote, 
the Contra Celsum stands out as the culmination of the whole apologetic movement of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. The Apostolic Church had not included among its members many wise or many mighty, and as Christianity spread, it was natural enough that some attempts should be made to make this Oriental faith, which had not the merit of great antiquity behind it, into a creed which could be found acceptable by thinking minds. The apologists have in view two closely related objects. They hope to assure the Roman authorities that Christians are not a pernicious and unpatriotic minority group with seditious tendencies and immoral rights, and they want to present Christianity to the educated classes as something intellectually respectable. In the work of Origen, it is primarily the latter desire that is uppermost. End of quote. Now, the text of the Contra Celsum is very corrupt. See the notes to this episode. We're going to resist our urge to get into the textual problems. But the general gist of the work is completely clear, and Chadwick summarizes it quite well. He leaves out one thing entirely, however. This is the way in which both Celsus's attacks and Origen's counterattacks employ the esoteric in weaponized form as a major source for generating cultural prestige, finding the truth in a wide range of textual sources, and refuting opposing positions in a number of other ways, esoterically. This episode will explore Celsus's thought, the ways in which he constructs esoteric traditions and uses them to oppose the Christians, and some of the context of all this. In the next episode, part two of our look at the Contra Celsum, we shall discuss the play of argument, of identity construction, and of weaponized esoteric interpretation and lineage building that goes on between the two thinkers at a remove of nearly a century, and look at the ways in which the esoteric is being harnessed in our period as a servant for new discourses of absolute truth. So let's get into the obscure Middle Platonist philosopher Celsus. But wait, is he a Platonist at all? There is a really interesting mystery here which we should look at first before we get into Celsus. We're not going to get into it too much for reasons of time, but it's, it's a real puzzler and it's worth mentioning. Origen is refuting Celsus point by point, and in the process, he cites tons of Celsus, to the point where we can actually reconstruct Celsus's philosophy to a large degree, or large enough anyway to say that he was definitely a middle Platonist philosopher, working in a thought world familiar to us more or less from our episodes on Middle Platonism, and Numenius especially, as we will see in this episode. There's a lot of the Numenian in Celsus, though with important differences. Now, Origen is, as we know, a very erudite philosophic Christian, as proven, if proof were needed, from the many arguments he draws on in the Contra Celsum. To be sure, his first resource is always to quote the scriptures. But when he explains the relevance of this or that prophetic saying from the Bible, or this or that vague Pauline's statement about things like knowledge in the spirit and stuff like that, stuff that you could read in any number of ways, he more often than not uses time-honored arguments drawn from the whole range of Greek philosophy, from Plato and even earlier, down right through the Hellenistic schools. For example, there's a whole lot of Stoic ethical argumentation in Origen, as in a lot of early Christians, and plenty of Platonist metaphysical argumentation is used against Celsus's Platonist metaphysical argumentation. So the point here is Origen really knows his philosophy. But somehow, Origen calls Celsus an Epicurean. Okay, he doesn't exactly do that. What he does, he mentions right at the beginning of the Contra Celsum, 
that there were two Epicurean philosophers of the name Celsus in the eras of Nero and Hadrian, and he kind of implies that his Celsus must be one of them. Later in the work, however, Origen gives up on this position and admits that Celsus is basically a Platonist. So what is going on here? First of all, Celsus shows not the slightest sign of being an Epicurean. Um, Epicureanism is really different from Platonism. Some scholars have argued that he was a kind of eclectic Epicurean with loads of Platonist ideas, but this doesn't work. The Epicureans were notoriously the least eclectic of all schools of Hellenistic philosophy. They just didn't do eclecticism. And they completely deny the basic metaphysical suppositions of Platonism. So, for example, you will never, ever find an Epicurean arguing that there, in fact, is something called divine providence. They deny divine providence fundamentally. So, what is Origen doing here? (laughs) No one knows, or no one can agree. But my money is on the point raised by Chadwick and other scholars that in the 3rd century, in Origen's time, the term Epicurean could just be used as a pejorative term, essentially meaning atheist. The Epicureans weren't atheists in the modern sense, as in denying that gods exist, but they denied divine providence, which is what the Greek term atheos originally refers to. When you hear someone being called atheos in antiquity, it means that they don't think the gods take care of humanity. So perhaps he is starting from Celsus's mysterious identity, because it may be that the philosopher Celsus was totally obscure by Origen's day, um, and that all anyone knew about him is that he'd written this anti-Christian pamphlet. And he's calling him an Epicurean, I think, just based on the fact that we know that there were some Epicurean Celsuses in the second century, and that's convenient in that Origen wants to make his Celsus out as the height of impiety, so why not just call him an Epicurean? This may also have something to do with Origen's desire to claim Plato for Christianity. So, in other words, he might not want to call Celsus a Platonist, since he himself is blatantly a Platonist of sort, a Christian Platonist. Battle lines are being drawn in the 3rd century. And as 3rd century Christians, like Origen, we want to distinguish the good guys from the bad guys with very black and white distinctions. Now, as we shall see in the next episode, the lines, the philosophical lines, are in reality very blurred. And so Origen perhaps has reasons for attempting to make them darker than they really are. To say, Celsus is totally wrong and we Christians are totally right, even though, in fact, we we overlap in a huge number of philosophical suppositions. So if we make Celsus into an Epicurean, it kind of draws the battle lines in a much more stark way than is actually the case. We'll see the same sort of thing, incidentally, when we get to Plotinus against the Gnostics. In fact, some scholars uh, recently want to see the whole text as really a case of Plotinus, whose thought is deeply indebted to Sethian Gnostic ideas, protesting too much. But more on that anon. And more on the battle lines of absolute discourses of truth in the 3rd century in the follow-up episode to this one. So that's all we have time for for the weird Celsus the Epicurean situation. See the bibliography to this episode for more information on that. Now, we know something about Origen from the last episode, so in this episode we want to look at Celsus and make a modest attempt at reconstructing his thought. It's esoteric, as it turns out. Then in the next episode we'll be able to turn to 
his critiques of Christianity, or at least the ones most relevant to the history of Western esotericism, and also discuss Origen's refutations of them, and finally make some concluding remarks about the significance of all this for the history of Western esotericism. The Contra Celsum is an absolutely precious document in that it is a kind of snapshot of ideological warfare in the third century that is unparalleled in the amount of evidence it gives us about Christian versus traditionally religious argumentation on the level of philosophy, and most importantly on the level of esoteric philosophy and religion. So, to try to reconstruct the thought of Celsus, we need to back-engineer his criticisms of Christianity to some extent. Since Origen only cites him in the context of sort of, you know, Celsus says this about us, but it's wrong for XYZ reasons. So, what were Celsus's objections to Christianity? We can group them into two main branches for the sake of discussion, the metaphysical and the cultural or identitarian. And the cultural or identitarian by far predominates. So Celsus's main objection to Christianity isn't really that they have their metaphysics wrong, although he thinks they do. It's much more to do with they're bad people, they're socially a bad force, they reject common civilized standards of humanity. But the two branches of argument that I've just constructed here are in fact very intertwined in Celsus, as we shall try to show. Let's start with a quote from quite late in the Contra Celsum, where Celsus gives a considered disquisition on basic metaphysical principles and the epistemology whereby we can know these principles. So this is a middle plateness telling us what reality is like and how we can know it. This is Chadwick's English with a bit of Greek thrown in for you Hellenophiles out there, since Chadwick translates nous and its cognates with mind and intelligible in English, and we find that a very deceptive translation. Quote, Being and becoming are respectively intelligible, noeton, and visible. Truth is associated with being, error, with becoming. Knowledge, episteme, concerns truth, opinion, doxa, the other. Thought is concerned with what is intelligible, kainoetumen estinoesis, so the subject of noesis is the noetic, and sight with what is visible. For mind, nous, knows that which is intelligible, the eye that which is visible. Accordingly, what the sun is to visible beings being neither the eye nor sight, but the cause of the eye's vision and of the existence of sight, and of the possibility of seeing things, which is the cause of all sensible things becoming, and is in fact itself the thing which enables itself to be seen, this is what God is to intelligible things. He is neither mind, nous, nor intelligence, noesis, nor knowledge, episteme, but enables mind to think and is the cause of the existence of intelligence and of the possibility of knowledge, and causes the existence of all intelligible things and of truth itself, and of being itself, since he transcends all things and is intelligible by a certain indescribable power. Panton epekenaon areto tini duname noitos. So, here we have some very familiar Platonist material drawing on the sun simile of Plato's Republic 508b, see episode 31 of the podcast, and a lot of other material from the Republic and the Timaeus being brought together in a kind of synthesis of 
how the world is and how we know it. We note two things in particular about this passage. Firstly, Celsus is one of those Middle Platonists who posits both an ineffable transcendent first principle, which he directly names God in this passage, but which, quote, causes the existence of all intelligible things and of truth itself and of being itself, since he transcends all things, end of quote. So here he's paraphrasing the beyond being of the form of the good in Plato's Republic 509b8-9. to We're talking about a transcendent God here, right? A God who, by virtue of not being being, or not being intelligible, or not being true, allows for all of these things to exist in the noetic realm. Secondly, we see that for Celsus, the adept can have noesis of this first god only through a transcendent and indeed ineffable power, which Celsus pointedly does not name and calls arretos, ineffable. It's noesis, but it's not noesis, right? Uh, a mode of cognition which is not cognition. In other words, Celsus is an apophatic Platonist of the second century and posits an ineffable mode of let's call it higher consciousness, for encountering the unsayable reality of God. Other passages from the Contra Celsum attest to the transcendence and ineffability of Celsus's God, who cannot be comprehended by thought, has no qualities, is beyond motion or change, and so forth. Uh, we can get some idea of God from analogy through things that have some likeness to him, but we can't have any direct knowledge of him that way. So for example, if you know good things, you can get some idea of the good, but you're not going to truly comprehend God by knowing a bunch of different good things. See the notes on this episode for the various passages in or origin where all this is mentioned. We can thus file Celsus alongside Numenius as a philosophic Platonist of the second century with a strongly apophatic take on the highest principle and positing an ineffable mode of hyper-epistemology, which transcends even noesis for the apprehension of this highest reality, which is not a reality. We can also adduce Clement and the Chaldean oracles here as more religious holders of the same view, Ceteris Paribus, and begin to wonder whether this whole Neoplatonism thing that arises in the third century was really all that Neo after all. And then if we bring in the Hermetica to the conversation, but that's just cheap foreshadowing. Let's move on. I would like to make two more points here. One, note the ways in which this talk of transcendent reality is accessible only through an inexpressible faculty or power is in fact an expression of the esoteric. I'm telling you about a reality. I'm showing it to you. I'm saying there's this thing called God. It is supremely good, supremely valuable. It's the best thing or non-thing. But I'm also telling you that I cannot tell you about it. I'm withholding it from you. I'm showing you that I'm withholding it from you. Rhetorical revealing and hiding, our favorite speech act here at the Schwepp. Two, we should note Origen's response to this statement of Celsus's, which is the longest continuous chunk of let's call it pure philosophy cited by Origen, and which he shoves quite near the back of the Contra Celsum, possibly because it is precisely the view he himself has of the nature of God and man's epistemological relationship to God, uh, which might be a bit embarrassing to Origen. Origen basically says, 
Uh, well, I agree with everything Kelsis has just said, because it's true, even though it comes from an impure source. So, Origen will not be saying that pagans can't be right about stuff. He's just saying they're not going to ever be Christians. Uh, more on that next episode. However, Origen's response is then, all of the philosophical points Kelsus has just made can be found in the scriptures. And then there follows some very creative scriptural exegesis on Origen's part. So score one for esoteric hermeneutics as polemical weapon. If your opponent, Kelsus, is claiming strong platonic authority for his views, which Kelsus is doing in this passage we've quoted by, you know, sort of riffing on the Republic and the Timaeus, you, Origen, can find the very same views expressed in Scripture, but esoterically. So Paul, when he refers to things invisible in 2 Corinthians 4.18, is of course referring to the noetic realities, etc. Now, Origen also here makes a, a statement of esoteric position. There are Christians of simple faith, and there are also an elite of the more intelligent people. But both groups, in fact, have a better access to the realm of true being than the fallen Celsus and his ilk, because these Christians can actually ascend to God's divinity. Now here we have an adumbration of Origen's doctrine of spiritual evolution toward God, which one suspects is inspired at least by Clements' doctrine of spiritual evolution toward God, see episode 94 of the podcast. So this is just a taste of the kind of esoteric polemics we shall be exploring in the next episode. Now, let's turn to Celsus's cultural polemics, which as we mentioned are kind of the more salient um, approach in the, the Alethes Logos, as preserved in the Contra Celsum. Celsus, as appears from very many citations in the Contra Celsum, is a fully-fledged Platonist perennialist, or what we at the Schwepp like to call a Platonist perennialist. He gives a whole lineage of barbarian nations who have, since time immemorial, transmitted the true account, the Alethes Logos. This account constitutes not only an esoteric teaching, it's also for Celsus a kind of common basic standard of decency and right worship for humanity, both a koinos logos and a koinos nomos, a, a common account of reality and a common body of law stroke custom. Hence, anyone who's fallen away from it is in an offensive position with regard to humanity and with regard to the gods. Needless to say, the Christians fit the bill here. But Celsus also goes as far as to include the Jews in his anti-lineage, in his um, people who fall outside the true account. Celsus exploits what I think are pretty common anti-Semitic tropes from the second century. And so he takes a different tack from Numenius, who gladly included Moses in his lineage of great sages, as we've seen in the podcast. The Jews for Celsus are bad because they rebel against the accepted universal norms of humanity, as Celsus sees them. Insisting, for example, on a single name for God, as though God didn't have innumerable names. Um, so they refuse any pluralism in their worship, but also in that they are just antisocial rejectors of normal, civilized society. So Celsus thinks 
as as most people do, to be honest, that the norms of the society they live in, in his case, a sort of Greco-Roman cosmopolitan society, are somehow universal norms. And the Jews, and also the Christians, go against these norms in a number of ways, which just makes them bad people. But Celsus tells us at least the Jews have an ancient tradition to which they are true. So he doesn't like the Jews, and he thinks they've somehow lost the true account. But at least they have the virtue of being true to their ancestral customs, which, as we know, for Greco-Romans generally and Platonists specifically, is a very important mark of virtue. The Christians don't even have that. Being, in effect, apostate Jews with no tradition at all. Part of what makes the true account great for Celsus is not only that it's true, but that it's the ancient account, the palaios or even the archaios logos. So he is exploiting the, um, the very common bigging up of antiquity that we find in um, Greco-Roman intellectual life. The oldest account is the best account. We find this again and again. We've discussed it before in the podcast. And using that as a major weapon against the Christians who are just new. They're young. They're, well, as Plotinus will say in the third century, punning on the words kainos and kenos, because they are new, kainos, their teaching is empty, kenos. That's a pun not from Celsus, but from Plotinus, but it kind of gets at the idea of Celsus's argumentation here. The ancient barbarians who transmit the true account include the usual suspects for Celsus, the Egyptians and the Babylonians. But Celsus adds some interesting flourishes to his lineage, which we do not find in any other surviving lineage from antiquity, all in one place. So the Persians, the Assyrians, the Indians, for all of these, there's evidence for Platonist orientalizing respect in other authors. But he also mentions the Odrusians, a Thracian tribe first mentioned by Herodotus, the Samothracians, the people of the Greek island of Samothrace, who are presumably in included because their island held the sanctuary of the great gods, one of the most important Panhellenic initiatory religious sites, and the Eleusinians, included for the obvious reason that they were the um, patrons of the Eleusinian mysteries, which of course, as we shall see, held the true account encoded through enigmata in its teachings. Celsus is a lover of the mysteries, which both transmit the true account through enigmas and also serve as an exemplar for the proper way of expressing wisdom, i.e. esoterically. So he comes out and says this again and again. The mysteries show us how it's supposed to be done. You're not supposed to just cast pearls before swine. And interestingly, Origen will turn this around and say, when Celsus accuses us of being a secret sort of antisocial conspiracy or whatever, he's uh, contradicting himself because look at the mysteries. No one says the mysteries are supposed to be public. Everyone agrees they're supposed to be secret. And so why can't we be secret, the Christians? Anyway, more on that next week. We also get some wonderful folkloric barbarian transmitters of the ancient wisdom in Celsus. The Hyperboreans, known to us from the Arimaspea of Aristeas, the so-called Greek shaman discussed in episode six of this podcast, the Galactophagi, or milk eaters from Homer's Iliad 13.6, the Druids of the Celts. And this is incidentally one of the very few references to the Druids in ancient literature that survives. And one of the only two I've found in the sources which indicates that they had something of a reputation for wisdom in antiquity. So maybe the ancient Druids really were, you know, 
the Druids. Um, Kelsus also includes the Getai, who appear in Herodotus in the weird story of Zalmoxis, Pythagoras' slave, who also does shamanistic cave incubation stuff. So those are some of the wonderful um, folklore inclusions in Celsus's lineage. But of course, he also includes the Greeks in a big way. So this is a wonderful lineage. Um, but the Greek part is actually, in a way, the most interesting. Don't get me wrong. I love me some Druids. But Celsus privileges the Greeks overtly. Now, all Platonists privilege the Greeks in actual practice, despite their nods to putative barbarian wisdom. But with Celsus, we actually have a surviving rationale. First of all, let's turn to a more focused lineage made up of sages, famous wise men of the past. So not just nations, but actual sages. Let's quote Michael Freyde here from his important article on Celsus. Quote, in addition to the ancient and wise nations and states, Celsus also refers to wise men. In 741, that chapter 7, uh, section 41 of the Contra Celsum, he is more specific and distinguishes between poets, wise men, and philosophers. Among these three groups, he counts Linus, Musaios, Orpheus, Pherecides of Syros, Zoroaster, and Pythagoras. Obviously also Homer, quote, Hesiod, and thousands of other inspired men, end of quote, and Heraclitus, of course. Now, this list is traditional. And in our episodes on various Middle Platonist perennialists, we have seen all of them before. In our discussion of Platonist esoteric hermeneutics, we've seen some of the ways in which the Platonists interrogated these disparate sources for philosophical meanings through esoteric reading. But note in this list the above-average number of Hellenic names. Celsus privileges the Hellenes elsewhere in the Contra Celsum, as being best able of all the different peoples to judge beliefs by argument or proof. So he's also just a Hellenic chauvinist from time to time. And interestingly, he depicts Hellenism, the speaking of Greek, but also the sort of bundle of cultural achievements grouped together as the Hellenic educational classical pattern under the Roman Empire. He depicts Hellenism as something of a reified tradition of its own, with superior cultural institutions that make it especially able to transmit the true doctrine. So the Hellenes, by implication through the invention of this genre called philosophy, are sort of the best expressors of the true doctrine, which actually gives a rationale to the fact that Celsus favors Plato so highly. Plato is just part of a long tradition that was first discovered or first expressed by barbarians, but because he has invented this wonderful dialectical form, he's the best expression out there of the true account. Now, interestingly, the Hellenes are opposed again and again to the Christians by Celsus. So the Hellenes are like this, but the Christians are like this. As Polymnia Athanasiadi puts it, Celsus posits contradictory essences that cannot be reconciled between Hellenism and Christianity. Now, Celsus here may be, or maybe in part, responding to the fairly common, from Paul onward, notion among Christians that they're, that they're a separate race, a genos or an ethnos, and one to which the term Hellene was increasingly associated with the other. As is well known by late antiquity, the term Hellene has come among Christians to mean pagan or traditionally religious, polytheist. 
but it doesn't mean that yet in the second century as far as we know. However, Celsus may be responding to already in the second century Christians going around saying, you Hellenes this and you Hellenes that. And according to this reading, he's saying, I'll see your other and raise you. The Christians are indeed another race, as it were, and an inferior one at that. So it may be that the battle lines are being drawn by the Christians and Celsus is saying, oh yeah, you think we're the Hellenes and you want to talk about us as the Hellenes? Well, guess what? The Hellenes do exist and we're better than you are. So ha. He's also sometimes employing the very strategy resorted to again and again by Clement in the Stromates, but precisely in reverse. So the Christians, according to Celsus, insofar as they do get anything right, stole it from the Hellenes. Now, Celsus adds his own specific take on things to this general picture. For him, the Greek poets and sages are inspired. By implication, the nomothetes and founders of mysteries, we can probably add to this group as well. So they're inspired by direct wisdom from God. But the philosophers are set aside as especially valuable for interpreting the true account. And Plato is given pride of place here for very specific reasons. It is Plato who both bears witness to the true account, but also he's the exemplar of the way the true account should be expressed. That is to say, esoterically. In this context, Celsus quotes the seventh Platonic letter. Plato has refused to put his highest doctrine into writing. Why? Because he's esoteric. Instead, what Plato provides is hints for the esoteric philosopher to uncover the true meanings, and he also, through his depiction of the dialectical process in the dialogues by which the philosopher goes about uncovering the true account, shows how it's to be done. The Christians, in rejecting dialectic, are rejecting the greatest way of expressing and explicating the true account. The ancient barbarians got it first, but the Greeks have expressed it best, and Plato best of all the Greeks, with Pythagoras as a close second. Taking all this evidence together, we can say that Celsus is the earliest fully-fledged Platonist perennialist with all the bells and whistles, aside from Numenius, or at least the first one who survives aside from Numenius. So this makes him very interesting from the perspective of the history of esoteric thought in antiquity. What stands out for me particularly in Celsus is the way in which he formulates what I would call an esoteric Hellenism. He seems to have attached a very strong importance to the uniqueness and special character of the Hellenic tradition. And within the context of the true account, it really is a tradition in a philosophia perennis kind of way. It's a perennial philosophy. Um, as it were. Plato's Egyptian priest in the Timaeus, see episode 27, can say that the Greeks are always children, and Celsus might agree. But he would also argue, citing Plato's laws, that the Greeks are best able to take the barbarian wisdom of the ancients and improve it. And secondly, the common heritage of the true account, the Alethes Logos, makes the Greeks really brothers with the Egyptians, as part of a civilized mankind. It's the Christians who are not only children, but very naughty children with no table manners. We see here, I would argue, the earliest surviving manifestation of a construction of Hellenism as both embodying an esoteric core of wisdom, 
to be found from Homer right down to the most recent philosophers, but with a preference always to be expressed for the ancients. So Plato is often referred to uh, by, by Celsus as one of the ancients and as a single unified philosophic tradition. This esoteric Hellenism will return in Plotinus's Ennead 2.9, for example, but perhaps most forcefully in the thought of the emperor Julian, who attempted for the brief few years when he held the reins of imperial power in the 4th century to turn back the tide of history away from Christian absolutism by positing an esoterically constructed Hellenic absolutism. We do not see anything like this level of totalizing discourse in Celsus in the 2nd century. No one thought in these absolute terms yet in the 2nd century. But I think, and I would argue, that we see some first stirrings of it. The first movements toward this way of reading human history as a kind of um, reified transmission of truth. And by contrast, of falsehood. Celsus was writing in the second century, a time when the idea of a single current of thought, a single tradition, coming to dominate the entire Greco-Roman thought world, would have seemed ludicrous to most observers. The Christian apologeticists of that era, and the heresiologists, did indeed want this to happen, it seems, in retrospect, and maybe even saw it as inevitable as part of God's plan, but they were only important in retrospect. So people like Irenaeus and Tertullian. To a lot of folks at the time in the second century, if they even registered Christians on their radar at all, it was as at best a sect of weird quasi-Jews without much really going for them, or at worst, a dangerous anti-establishment cult that needed suppressing. But we seem to see in Celsus the stirrings of an idea that would become much more prevalent in the third century and become reality in the fourth century, at least on a level of ideology that there not only can, but must be a single ideology, a single view of the truth, a single true account. By the time Origen responds to his polemic, the idea that there can be a single truth, a single salvific path, is gaining in momentum, and the battle lines are being drawn in real earnest. In the next episode, we shall get mixed up in the battle, in the trenches of Origen's Contra Celsum. Join us then, and in the meantime, be like the true account of wisdom handed down by all the reputable, civilized peoples of the world, and stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>